Hey there, I'm Mark Scarborough, and you know this is the podcast Walking with Dante. How long have we been walking together? A long, long time, I think. We are in Purgatorio. That's how far we've come. We are at Canto 6, lines 106 through 126. We're back into the invective that is the back half of Purgatorio Canto 6, where Dante, the poet, seems to take off in an almost willy-nilly fashion as his rage builds at the strife on the Italian peninsula. In fact, in this passage, his rage is going to lead him well, either to irony or outright blasphemy. We'll talk about that as we get to it. It's an interesting section, lines 106 through 126 of this canto. You can find this, my English translation of the Florentine, on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. Thank you very much for going out there if you want to. And you can print it off, read along, or better yet, you can drop a comment to me and continue the conversation on this complicated passage in the middle of Dante incredibly vitriolic invective in Purgatorio, Canto 6. Come and see the Montecchi and the Capoletti, the Monaldi and the Filippeschi, men without any cure, some already wretched and others loaded with anxiety. Come, cruel one, Come and see the distress of your nobles, and give a thought to their wounds. Then you'll see how dark Santa Fiora is. Come and see your Rome, who cries out night and day like a widow, left all alone. My Caesar, why do you not accompany me? Come and see how your people love each other. And if such can't move you out of pity for us, then come out of shame over your own reputation. And if I may lawfully ask, O Most High Jove, who was crucified on earth for us, are your righteous eyes bent another direction at the moment? Or is this some preparation in the abyss of your own counsel to do some good which is altogether beyond our comprehension? For every city in Italy is full up with tyrants and every idiot who comes along thinks he can become Marcellus. Well, that seems well and enough as a start into the middle of this crazy invective. This is the part where the poet seems to almost lose control. And we'll talk about that, about whether control is lost in this passage or not. There's a really difficult bit, well, two actually really difficult bits in this passage. But before we get to those difficult bits, let us talk through who some of the people are in this passage. It's the Montecchi and the Capoletti and at the end, the mention of Marcellus. So that we're just clear on which direction the poet Dante's rage is focused. The passage begins at line 106, Come and see the Montecchi and the Capoletti, the Monaldi and the Filippeschi, men without any cure, some already wretched, and others loaded with anxiety. These are big-name families before Dante's time, actually. They're big-name families who are part of the Ghibelline and Guelph, or Wealth, feuds across the Italian peninsula. Let's just go through them really quickly. The Montecchi is actually a strange name because Dante has, uh, what do we want to say, Tuscanized or Florentineized, a family name there. Actually, the Montecoli family. They were all 
family-centered uh, somewhere around Verona. They were a merchant family who, through the acquisition of a great deal of cash, started buying up huge bits of landed estate. Ultimately, this family, the as Dante calls the Montecchis, or as they actually are, the Montecolis, this family uh, gets connected with Ezzelino III. They get all riled up into his problems, and they vie for control across Lombardy. That is the grand plan that somehow they will control all of what we now know as Lombardy. They fail in this attempt. In fact, by oh the late 1200s, Basically, the Montecoli family is no longer a function of any kind of strife in northern Italy. They're replaced in Verona by the Della Scalas. And the Della Scalas are the family that partially hides Dante and protects him during exile. So these are the precursors of the Della Scalas who take over Verona. And they're paired here with the Capalettis. Again, this is a name of a vanquished family and actually probably not a family. The Capaletti is more a name of the Guelphs or Welfs of Cremona. But the strife between the Montecchis and the Capalettis for control of Lombardy centered on Cremona. This family, the Capalettis, were ultimately defeated by the Holy Roman Emperor Henry VII as he descended into Italy, the Holy Roman Emperor who was Dante's great hope. This is an interesting little bit here. I just to go to what? I don't know, take a bypass or take a detour here. The Montecchi and Capaletti families in this line have a storied history, if you don't know. They actually get put into a story oh, about 120, 130 years after Dante. And then that story gets developed really fully by Luigi da Pato. And Luigi da Pato uh, takes this story and blows it up and adds to these families' uh, what, progeny, Romeo and Juliet. And he also gets the names of the family wrong, changing them to the Montagues and Capulets. That story from 1530 by Da Porta gets picked up by another man, Matteo Bandello. He retells it in a 1554 version with those same characters. And of course, straight from there, it goes to Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. And he's based on a corruption of this line, believe it or not. Okay, let's move on to the other two families. There's the Monaldi and the Filippeschi. This time we're down in Ovieto. The Monaldis are the Guelph or Wealth faction and the Filippeschis are the Ghibelline faction. Again, most of this strife is done by Dante's day and certainly done by the time he's writing Purgatorio. But by the year 1300, the alleged fictional day of comedy, this is pretty well cooling down. But the wounds are still horribly present, thus the question of men without any cure, without any ability of healing, some already wretched, loaded with anxiety. All right, those are the names in the front of the passage. Now let's jump to the bottom, the very end, and talk about Marcellus for a minute. This passage ends with the lines, for every city in Italy is full up with tyrants. That's a really loaded word for Dante, tyrants. And every idiot, 
I love this, given the modern political climate. Every idiot who comes along thinks he can become Marcellus. There has been a long commentary debate on who this Marcellus is. I'm going to go with the consensus, and that is this Marcellus is Marcus Claudius Marcellus, named in Lucan's Pharsalia, Book 1, Line 313. This is the common critical consensus, but you should just know there are several Marcelluses who are proposed for this. I like this because this Marcellus, named in the Pharsalia, is linked with Cato. These are the people who oppose Julius Caesar, who is, of course, on a march to become an emperor and change the Roman Republic into the Roman Empire. I like that because this is a moment then which calls us back to Cato at the beginning of Purgatorio. And Cato is a figure who forbids delay. Remember, he reappears and says, what are you standing around here listening to Casella saying for? Like, get going. You got a mountain to climb. And he forbids delay. And in fact, one of the things that is so vitriolic about this passage, so rageful about it is that the poet seems to be very angry at God for delaying, for not settling the strife in Italy. So the link back to Cato as a figure who forbids delay for me makes a nice rap with the opening bits of Purgatorio. But you should just know that that critical thinking is a little bit tentative because, again, others have posed other solutions for who this Marcellus is. Let's move on to who the passage is addressed to, because this is actually a bit controversial. Remember, it starts, come and see the Montecchi and Capoletti, and then it goes on at line 109, come cruel one, come and see the distress. And then again at 112, come and see your, your, your Rome. I just want to emphasize that word, your Rome, who cries out night and day like a widow. You know, my Caesar, why do you not accompany me? This is very much direct at someone. Come and see how your people love each other. And by this point, love each other, the sarcasm in the passage is out of control because we know through the strife on the Italian peninsula that there is no love amongst these families and political groups. So the sarcasm here has gotten so thick that the poet is saying the reverse of what he means. He means that they hate each other. But he puts it in the terms of a reverse argument, a reverse statement in ultimate sarcastic terms. Come and see how they love each other. Well, who's supposed to come and see? The common answer here is that it's Albert I. Remember him from the last bit of this invective? He's the Holy Roman Emperor who was elected but never coronated because he was assassinated. And since Albert I came up, German Albert, in the last passage. Usually it's thought here that the cruel one, the one who's supposed to come and see, is Albert. Come and see what's happened to where you should be Caesar. Come and see what's happened to your Rome, where you should take your throne. Come and see what's happened to your people, as if the Italian people will become part of the Holy Roman Empire, which is a bit of Dante's hope. But let me tell you that because we descend or ascend, depending on how you want to look at it, to God 
in the middle of this passage, there is a slight niggle in my mind about cruel one being God. I realize when I say that, it seems hyper blasphemous, but this passage does get blasphemous. And the question is why and how. So one of the things that I think happens, at least in my reading of the passage, is that the poet's rage winds up to such a moment that he stands accusing God of delay. And that is where we hit the blasphemy. I'm at line 118. And if I may lawfully ask, let me stop. The answer is no. As a Christian, Dante cannot lawfully, and notice he's looking for a lawful legitimacy. Remember Justinian's code in the previous bit of this invective? This is linking right back to that Justinian bit. This is <laughs> this is why it's so great to read comedy slowly, because we can see these careful little threaded filaments. So we had just had Justinian and his legal code earlier, and now we have this question of may I lawfully ask. And again, let me just say, for a Christian, the answer is no. You have no basis for questioning God, period. But it goes on and it gets weirder. And if I may lawfully ask, O most high Jove, who was crucified on earth for us. Now, that line, who was crucified on earth for us, clearly means that Jove is standing in for Jesus. But why the move toward (laughs) a pagan deity? This doesn't make any sense. Before you answer that, I just want to go on in the passage to say more of why it doesn't make any sense. So let's just accept it. It's Jove who was crucified on earth for us. And he says, are your righteous eyes bent another direction at the moment? You know what this sounds like? This sounds a lot like Elijah's taunt to the prophets of Baal or Baal, if you want to be proper about it, the prophets of Baal. All in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 26 of the Old Testament or Tanakh. If you look at that bit, Elijah builds an altar and the prophets of Baal build an altar. And the deal is they're going to have a contest and see which ones God calls fire down onto the altar. And the prophets of Baal dance and scream and nothing happens. And Elijah hmm, goes into a taunt at them. And he says, oh, your God must be on vacation, or he must be sleeping, or he must be away, or he must be on other business. This bit, is, are your righteous eyes bent in another direction at the moment, is reminiscent of that taunt that Elijah gives to the prophets of Baal. But here's the problem. Elijah is not taunting God or Adonai, the quote-unquote real God in the passage. He's taunting the prophets of the false God. And here we have this reminiscent echo of that, except now it's directed at what we would presume Or is it the real God? Or is it, given the Jove reference? Oh, man. See how complicated this is getting? Let's just move on for just a second. Or is this some preparation in the abyss? Oh, God. Labiso, the abyss of your own counsel to do some good, which is altogether beyond our comprehension. To identify God with the abyss is 
definitely blasphemous. What is going on here? Well, let's go back to Virgil. <laughs> it always goes back to Virgil, doesn't it? Let's go back to Virgil, because there may be an answer there. Remember when Dante says, in the Aeneid, you claim that prayers for the dead do no good. And Virgil gives that garbled answer, which we've already had. Part of Virgil's garbled answer is to say, oh, well, you know, I was writing about pagans praying to the wrong god. I was praying. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Jove. I was writing about pagans praying to the wrong God. And so that's why what I said wasn't really wrong because their prayers really couldn't do anything. Because it was the real God. Remember all that bit? Here it is. Jove. What is going on? I thought you just said that there was a difference between pleading toward a pagan God and the real God. There's a couple answers I think I can develop from this, and you might be able to come up with more because it is a thorny knot. Let me give you a couple answers. I think I've messed it up enough that you can see how complicated this is. First, maybe it's Jove here in this passage who was crucified on earth for us, which is <laughs> just ridiculous, cannot have been true. Maybe the problem here is Dante's hedging his bets. Dante knows that he's pushing it. He's calling God's intellect an abyss, and he's taunting God. Are your eyes bent another direction at the moment? That's impossible. God is all-seeing in Christian doctrine, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. God's eyes cannot be localized and turned aside. So this is contra good to mystic doctrine, good Christian orthodox doctrine, because God doesn't have eyes that can look elsewhere. So maybe Dante mentions Jove because he's pulling back a little bit from the, oh, not incipient blasphemy, from the overt blasphemy of the passage, and Jove just allows it a little distance from the abyss and your eyes turned another direction problem. Or, and this is a secondary answer I can develop, maybe what's happening in Canto 6 is a very, very complex irony. Let me explain this for just a second. So we have Virgil say, you know, well, my characters were praying to the wrong God, so that's why the prayers didn't work. And then we get out here, and in this righteous anger invective, Dante suddenly throws out the name Jove, which, you know, is not exactly the Christian God. And so Dante the poet is aware that even as he's writing this, there is a fundamental irony involved because of his love of Virgil, because of his belief that Virgil was a precursor of Christian doctrine, because of all of that. Dante knows there's a fundamental irony going on, and so he's playing with that irony by bringing Jove into the passage here rather than God or the name Jesus as it should be. That's a very complicated point, and if that's the way you want to take it, then you would be definitely, or I would be definitely, leaning into the polyvalency or the multivocality of the text, because we would be claiming that there are various strains or voices running through this text, contradicting each other and creating an ironic space or 
to use a much fancier word, an ironic discourse that is the foundation level of the righteous rage-filled invective that the passage actually is. It's interesting then to build that invective on a foundation of irony. Maybe. I can't, I don't feel, uh, see, I'm, I'm hesitating. I can't fully put my weight on that one. <laughs> when I sit in quiet at my desk, I feel that that's a great answer. When I talk aloud about it, I'm suddenly back in the bit of, well, maybe Dante the Poet is hedging his bets by not naming Jesus, but using the word Job, which makes it somehow more acceptable as he accuses God of delay or having an abyss of an intellect. God's intellect would be seen as an abyss far deeper than our own, but an abyss has certain really loud connotations in comedy, particularly the way the term got used previously in the infernal abyss. So using that term again is really complex here. You can see why this passage is so troubling, why it so is easy to blip past it. Because if you blip past it, (laughs) you don't have to do what we just did, which is wrestle with it. And trust me, this is wrestling. But that is the intellectual fun of a multivocal or polyvalent text. We get to have a puzzle put down and we get to try to solve it, realizing that none of our solutions will ever be adequate. It's a lot to say, I know, really high level intellectually stimulating and also intellectually troubling material. But I think it's really important for us to see it and for us to, you know, take it under our wings and think about it and pull it apart. That's why we're walking slowly. So we can see these really fine filaments, uses of words, uses of pagan gods. So we can see these fine filaments extending out from every passage because that is why Dante is one of the greatest writers in world history and certainly in the Western tradition. I hope you're enjoying the walk. I hope that you will rate this podcast. I hope you'll write a review for it if you're enjoying it. I really appreciate that. It does me a world of good and I would love to have more conversations with you about this. You can find me on my website as always markscarpro.com or walkingwithdante.com Otherwise, just subscribe so you can come back and get the end of the invective. (laughs) Oh gosh. The end of the invective in Canto 6 ahead of us on the next episode of Walking with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you then.